it wouldn't be prudent to do this in a hymnal copy of the Confessions, but if you have a copy of the Catechisms and the Confession, hopefully you have a copy that has all the proof texts because it's a marvel to read. I mean, this particular uh, question and answer has got a litany of Scripture uh, backing it up. And it's always helpful because not only do does that remind you that the Catechism is grounded in Scripture, but it shows us and teaches us how our Reformed forefathers read their Bibles. So question 139, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, again, that's brothels, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. This really is a powerful Uh, a powerful teaching on what sexual purity looks like for God's people. And I mentioned this last week, and it bears repeating. If the church in the Western world would simply read this and adhere to it, it would solve a number of the problems we're having within our various ecclesiastical bodies But that's not the only concern we have. We have to consider our own hearts, our own unchaste thoughts, our own sinful proclivities where these things are concerned. And frankly, brothers and sisters, how we invite things of the world in that will produce these sins in our hearts. And if we contemplate that and and we begin to get a picture of our own wickedness It drives us to Jesus because we know I need help that no mere man could provide. I need a perfect righteousness to stand before God. I need Christ's righteousness. And I need one who can pay the full penalty for all the times I violated God's law, even the seventh commandment. And only the God-man could pay that penalty. So we hear God's law and it always brings us back to Jesus, where we can find rest. Let me say it this way. It is appropriate when you hear God's law to have a moment of tension. If you never have a moment of tension, you need to evaluate your heart. But you don't get stuck in that moment of attention. The believers always pressed to the foot of the cross where they know there's full and free salvation. 
So as a body of believers, uh, we hear God's law, we confess our sins, and then we hear his word of pardon. This week, our confession of sin is adapted from Psalm 130. Psalm 130. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And then hear this word of pardon from Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, besides me there is no God. Remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. And like a cloud, your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. What a great saving God. Well, let's continue praising the Lord, standing to sing number 130A. 130A. Lord, from the depths to you I cry. Dr. Albert Moeller has written extensively and helpfully for the past 20 years or so on the sexual revolution. And while he didn't coin the phrase, he certainly popularized the idea among conservative evangelicals that what we've been living through in the past 70 years is nothing less than a sexual revolution. And I think it might be easy for us to miss the force of that word, revolution. I mean, a revolution is the overthrow, perhaps even a violent overthrow, of the present order. And in the case of the sexual revolution, what Christians are observing is just that. The overthrow of the sexual moral order that's characterized Western civilization for nearly two millennia. What's interesting and noteworthy is that if you go back in history nearly two millennia, Christians observed and even participated in another sexual revolution. It took place in the Greco-Roman world as the gospel began to spread community to community in the first and second and third centuries. Prior to the spread of the gospel, there were very few restrictions placed on sexual activity. In the Roman Empire, a free male Roman citizen had basically one law to follow. He couldn't have sex with the wife of another free Roman citizen. Anything else was acceptable. He was free to explore whatever sexual activity he desired. 
So it was common and for, it was common for prominent Romans to have a wife who would bear children and, and care for their home. And, and on the side, he would have a concubine with which he may have had some emotional attachment. Then there would have been slaves who, in addition to other duties, were expected to satisfy whatever sexual desires their masters had. Then there were prostitutes they would go to, perfectly legal, if they still weren't fulfilling all their sexual desires. And it was even common for these free Roman men to keep stalls of young men to provide sexual favors. The only rule in regards to homosexual activity in the Roman Empire, is that it was frowned upon for the free man to take the passive role in the act of a homosexual relationship because that was considered demeaning. Otherwise, almost any sexual activity was legal and morally accepted in the Greco-Roman world. Ligon Duncan had done some research on this and said the Jewish rabbis had determined that no Gentile woman could be assumed to be a virgin who was older than three years in one day. Such was the sexual depravity in the culture during the early centuries of the church. And this provides context for why Paul will tell the Thessalonians not to follow the sexual immorality of the Gentiles or the pagans or the heathens. But something happened in the early church as the gospel spread. And men and women were made free in Christ and lived with a commitment to sexual purity. A sexual revolution began to spread in the Roman Empire. One grounded in something much closer to a biblical morality of human sexuality. Roman laws began to change. They cracked down on divorce. On divorce, They made it illegal to have sex outside of marriage. All forms of homosexuality were deemed illegal. Children and women were utterly liberated from the sex trade. And much of the prostitution was drastically curtailed. It was a sexual revolution. And the winners of that revolution were women and children and all of society. If you're inclined to research this history, I'd commend you the book, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. It's written by Kyle Harper. He's a brilliant academic who I'm quite confident is not a Christian, but he's provided a detailed chronicle of how the influence of Christianity had a helpful, really wonderful impact on the sexual morality that developed in Western civilization. I don't believe it's an exaggeration to say that Western civilization inherited sexual sanity from Christianity. And now, as Western civilization wants to jettison all forms of Orthodox Christianity, it shouldn't surprise us that they would return to pagan sexual insanity. But I do wonder how the Lord might use the church in our time if Bible-believing Christians unapologetically promoted and lived out a biblical sexual ethic. What impact might the church have if she boldly embraced and practiced sexual 
purity. And I don't mean prudishness, which usually has more to do with holier than thou than holiness. I mean a firm grip on and a thorough commitment to biblical sexual purity. Is it possible that an unembarrassed, godly sexual ethic among believers might be used by God to restore sexual sanity to Western civilization? Is that possible? We can't know. Because we don't know what God's going to do. What we do know is that lives that are characterized by sexual purity are well-pleasing to God. And we do know the kinds of exhortations that were given to the early church that resulted in such dramatic cultural change. And we're going to hear some of those exhortations this morning as we return to our study in 1 Thessalonians. Let's first seek the Lord's face. So pray with me once more. Our great God, again, we so delight that as men and women of God, we can come before your throne and expect to hear our God speak to us. We expect that the good shepherd of our souls will speak to his sheep. And we know that his sheep will hear his voice. So speak, O God, your servants and sheep listen. Grant us this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to read verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles, again, Gentiles there think heathen or pagan, not the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And the grass withers And the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Dearest congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, good churches still need strong warnings. That comes through loud and clear in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. This is a church that's received the highest accolades from Paul and the other missionaries that were instrumental in her planting. It would be nearly impossible to exaggerate the affection and the esteem that Paul had for this church. And and that esteem and that affection is undergirding uh, the theme of the first three chapters. But beginning in chapter 4, we get to exhortations and even warnings. 
And the purpose of these exhortations and warnings is to, to urge the church to continue walking in a way that pleases God. Something we know the Thessalonians were eager to do. And because Paul understands the human heart as well as the culture out of which the Thessalonians were saved, he applies these exhortations and warnings with laser-like clarity. Again, look there in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. As we learned last week, abstaining means keep it from you as far as possible. Flee from it. Avoid it at all costs. Don't let it get close to you. And sexual immorality is the word porneia, and it's an inclusive word to speak of sexual sin, from pornography to adultery to homosexuality, any expression of sexuality in thought or word or deed that takes place outside the covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman for one life. And we learned that within the context of marriage, again, this is last week, we learned that within the context of marriage, sexuality is actually a beautiful gift from God. Because in a mysterious way, it mimics the intimacy of God's people the intimacy God's people will enjoy with Christ forever. As one writer said, our benighted society urgently needs recalling to the noble and ennobling view of sex which scripture implied and the seventh commandment assumes. Namely, that sex is for fully and permanently committed relationships which prepare us for and help us into that which is their archetype. Namely, the love and delight of knowing God. Therefore, when it comes to sexual purity, Christians do more than defend traditional notions of marriage and morality. Our concerns are rooted in creation and redemption and a knowledge of God. And that's where we pick up this morning. In verses 4 through 6, the apostle is going to give us some very practical advice and motivations in regard to sexual purity. And then in verses 6 through 8, he offers a powerful warning to motivate us to sexual purity. So listen again to verses 4 and 5. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now these two verses are packed with profound implications. The exhortation stresses personal responsibility for our sexual purity. Take notice of how verse 4 begins. Each of you. Each of you in the church. That's how Paul's addressing the Thessalonians and us for that matter. You see, my friend, the, the church in Thessalonica was so inundated with a culture of, sex, culture of sexual immorality that every member of the congregation had to be aware of their surrounding and the potential impact on their life with Christ. 
And isn't that just as true for us? Don't we have to know these sorts of things are applicable to us? Unless you plan to wake up Monday morning somewhere other than 21st century America, this is something you have to be aware of. There's sexual immorality pressing in toward us from almost every angle and every place you look, whether it's your workplace or Myers or Russ's having coffee or browsing the internet. You need to be aware we're swimming in cultural waters that are polluted with sexual immorality. And these waters intentionally and purposely want to drown you as a Christian. And each of you needs to know this. You see, dear ones, in our culture, no one will remain sexually pure by accident. And Paul stresses the point further when he goes on to say that we're to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. Our own vessel. Now, there are some commentators who believe the word vessel here could be translated as wife, and that's not altogether illegitimate. And and where they're going with this is that Paul's basically saying husbands should acquire and dwell with their wives in chastity. And while that's taught elsewhere in the Bible, and it's theologically true, I don't believe that's what the apostle has in mind here. The word he used for, uses for vessel is skuos. And when Paul uses that word, he almost always means our bodies. It's the word he uses in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to say we have this treasure in earthen vessels. By vessels, he means these bodies. And so I think the ESV is right to translate it as body. And so the point of Paul's exhortation is that men and women need to exercise control. Men and women need to master their bodies where sexual morality is concerned, and and do so in holiness and honor. And Paul's big point in this opening section here is that all of God's people have a responsibility. We have to know how to possess our own body in sanctification. I don't need to know how to possess your body in sanctification. And you don't need to know how to possess my body in sanctification. Which means the way we apply this might actually work out in some different ways. The way a 25-year-old and a 75-year-old will pursue sexual purity might not look exactly the same. The way men and women approach the topic of sexual purity might not look exactly the same. But what is true for each of us is we have to know our bodies, our vessel. And we have to know our personal weaknesses. And they are different sinner to sinner to sinner. And each of us must know how the world and the devil will seek to get a foothold in our lives to captivate our flesh with lust to entice us and ultimately decimate our walk with the Lord by obliterating our sexual purity. That means you've got to know the things you struggle with. This is a starting point that we all have besetting sins. We all have tender parts of our conscience that are easy prey for the enemy. And if we know there are areas where we're weak, 
we have to get rid of them. They can't be part of our lives. I had a conversation about two, two and a half months ago with a man who said he was convinced in his own mind that he's a sexual addict. And he said, I hate it. I want to change. He said, but every single time I turn on the television, every time I see something that entices, I said, well, get rid of the television. He said, I can't do that. I said, then you don't take it seriously. Men tend to be more visual. And that means we have to restrict what we see with our eyes. That's what Job said in the 31st chapter. I've made a covenant with my eyes. And then why should I look at young women? You see, Job got it. He knew his vessel. He understood that he was a visual creature. And he had to have blinders on if he intended to control his body in holiness and honor. Men need to make a covenant with their eyes. And especially today. Because blatant, titillating sexuality is Everywhere You can't drive to Chicago without seeing multiple billboards that have one purpose, dear ones, to get you to commit sexual immorality. Or to use Paul's language, they're there to incite you in the passion of lust that exists in the heathens who do not know God. It is everywhere. And even when you're not looking about... Again, this was about four or five weeks ago. My wife and I were sitting in the living room. To our shame, we both have our heads stuck in our respective iPads. And I was doing a search on YouTube on how to cut fat dovetails in thick material <laughs> for a project I want to commit. And you would not believe the stuff that came up. I took it and showed my wife. I said, look, this is all I, I searched for cutting fat dovetails and... Women popped up on my YouTube feed who were wearing little more than a construction belt. I guess it had something to do with dovetail, but that's an inside joke I don't know. But it's everywhere whether you're looking or not. And again, no one's going to remain sexually pure in our culture by accident. For women who tend to not be quite as visual... They may need to be careful about the things they read. Because women, more often than not, are more relational than visual. If you're into salacious romance novels that cause your mind to go places you ought not go, you need to stop reading them. I've marveled over the years at, at some of the books that get passed around. And they're supposed to be Christian stories. And they're softcore porn. Dear ones, men and women alike need to hear Paul's word, heed Paul's words in Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Because you have to know the devil is a master at getting his camel nose under the door of the tent. And this is where God's people often get tripped up. 
they think, well, I can make a little provision for the flesh, <laughs> and I'll be okay. You know, I'm going to look at these images here, but, but nothing more graphic, I promise. I'll do a little bit of flirting with my neighbor or co-worker, because I'm kind of a flirty guy, but I know when to back off. I'll fantasize a bit in my mind, but I won't let it go too far because of my steely will. When people engage in those kinds of rationalizations, whether they know it or not, they're writing checks to the devil that he will inevitably cash, likely at a time you don't expect. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Because, beloved of the Lord, this is God's will for you. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And positively, there is good news in this verse. The power of overcome, to overcome. Did you hear it there at the end? The Gentiles who do not know God. But that's not like you, because you do know God. You are a Christian. You have confessed faith in Christ. You have been baptized into his church. And as it says down in verse 8, you have been given the Holy Spirit. That's where we find power and ability to stand against the onslaught of a world that aggressively promotes sexual immorality. In knowing our actual identity, this is who we are. Dear ones, you're united to Christ. That's your identity and that's your dignity. A Christian man or a Christian woman. And so ultimately, he becomes the chief object of your desires. Because knowing that he's redeemed you, that he shed his blood to purchase you, it's now the desire of your heart to please God with your body and your soul. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you. As Paul says in Romans 6, verse 11 and forward, consider yourself... Alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments, un, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God. As being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You've been redeemed. The Holy Spirit is working in you. Which is why... Paul could write in Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The grace of God has appeared to you and to me and is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. The grace of God is teaching us that those who have the Spirit, you have been washed, sin's power has been broken and we're being renewed day by day. And of course, that does not mean that earnest Christians won't sin. We will. 
Our life is war till we enter glory. And until we enter glory, that old man is going to be in a constant battle with the new spirit-enlivened man. But the spirit will transform you. He has the power. This is the glorious motivation to perseverance, that God is empowering you by his spirit. And let me just say, this is one of the reasons we have to rebuff any notion that a person says, I'm a homosexual, that's part of my orientation, and I can never change. Really? Your sin is more powerful than the omnipotent third person of the Trinity. By golly, that's the darnest sin ever. It's ridiculous and it's blasphemy. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. Don't take my glib comments in the wrong way. But we don't believe a person is stuck forever in a sin pattern with no hope. Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. Or he's no savior at all. Well, another motivation towards sexual purity is knowing that your sin can hurt others. That seems to be what Paul's getting at there in verse 6 when he says that no one should take advantage, advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord's the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. In the plainest possible way, Paul's telling us that the degree to which we allow a sex-crazed culture to influence us is the degree to which we have an opportunity to cause a brother or sister in the Lord to stumble. And what this means, brothers and sisters, is at least this. Sexual immorality is never a victimless offense. I I mentioned this last week. This is going to be the new push you're going to hear in certain political circles. Well, I'm I'm personally opposed to sexual immorality. I don't like it personally. But but in terms of public policy, you know, bunk. It's never a victimless offense. Because they don't have the foresight to know how it hurts people doesn't change the reality. Sexual immorality destroys and leaves devastation in its wake. And you know this if you've ever dealt with a family that's experienced adultery. And I say family because it never just hurts the spouse. That's where the pain is most severe, but it also decimates children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and everyone that loves that family. Sexual immorality has a way of reverberating through the families and hurting everyone it touches. Let me add something to that. Where there's gross sexual immorality, there is never love. Where there's gross sexual immorality, there is never love. I say that because over the years I've had several men say to me, I'm really sorry I cheated. I love my children. I love my wife. Or or I love the person I had adultery with. And I have to say gently but firmly, when you committed adultery, the only person you loved in that whole scenario was yourself. If you loved your children, you wouldn't have done this. If you loved your wife, you wouldn't have done this. 
And if you loved the woman you cheated with, you wouldn't have participated in sin with him or her. That's never what love does, period. Brings to mind the words of our Lord Jesus, the words he spoke to his disciples when he said, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Don't justify the fact that you've had an adulterous relationship under the rubric of love because it's not love, it's selfishness. This adds another dimension to what it means to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor, another motive for sexual purity. You have to make sure that your life and testimony are such that they're not going to do damage to another. Because as we move through the rest of verse 6, we see that Paul begins to heap up warnings. He says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we forewarned you and testified, And then the apostle builds on this warning down in verses 7 and 8. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Now, it's noteworthy that Paul and the other missionaries had warned the Thessalonians when they were with them, this could be a real danger for you in a culture where there's virtually no restraints on sexual morality, it would be easy for you, dear believers, to slip into that, to think you could move in and out of that world easily. And so Paul's saying, look, we've already given you this solemn warning. When we were with you, you are called to holiness and to sexual purity. And those who think they can dismiss God's call to sexual impurity aren't rejecting what some preacher said or even what the Apostle Paul said or even what Timothy said when he was with them. They're standing in opposition to God. Well, I want to I wrap up by looking at 1 Corinthians 6. So let me ask you to turn there in your Bibles. As I said, I want to touch on a couple of apologetic issues associated with this idea. And I want to... I want to wrap up, take a couple minutes and look at 1 Corinthians 6, particularly verses 9 through 11. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm having a spasm in my shoulder. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 6. It's helpful to know that that Paul wrote, um, Paul wrote, the letter to the Thessalonians while he was at Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, I want to read verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, did you hear that first phrase? Do you not know? 
The apostle uses this expression ten times in 1 Corinthians and six times in this very chapter. Do you not know? This is Paul's way of saying, you're the people of God, and these things really should be obvious to you. There aren't complicated theological issues. There are things that are clear. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The apostle, of course, isn't suggesting that a person who commits one of these sins will never inherit the kingdom of God or that they're not saved. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. What Paul is telling the Corinthians is if they practice these things, if they continue in these sins and do so without repentance or any regard for the teaching of God's word, or they take these sins for granted as though they don't matter to God, that's a picture of rotten fruit. It demonstrates the person hasn't actually experienced the grace of God. Again, it goes back to the issue of what's being taught under the rubric of side B, gay Christianity. I've taught a few times on these things, but it's worth remembering them. Side A, gay Christianity, basically believes that God blesses homosexual marriage. Side B, gay Christianity, says they hold to what they call a traditional biblical ethic of marriage and human sexuality. And what they mean by that is, I'm homosexual. That's just who I am. Therefore, I can never, ever have sex with anyone, but I wouldn't get married to a man. But they don't see homosexual desire in and of itself as sinful and something that needs to be mortified. And it is. You can't sanctify a sin. And that's what they seek to do. They want to sanctify their gayness. They want to sanctify their desire for people of the same sex. You can't sanctify what Christ died for. And that's really all Paul's teaching us in 1 Corinthians 6. Now there is good news in this passage Obviously. And it's that it's not a permanent condition. This is one of those bad news, good news texts. The bad news is you were a vile and wicked sinner. You were a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, a homosexual, a sodomite, a thief, a coveter, a drunkard. But that's not who you are. Such were some of you. That's the good news of the gospel. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That's the wonderful message that the Christian church has for sinners, for homosexuals, 
for people who've sinned in all sorts of sexually immoral ways, that there's full and free redemption in Christ. You don't have to wear a collar around your neck, a sort of scarlet letter that says, I am forever now a homosexual. I am forever now a drunkard. I am forever now an idolater. No. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of God's sovereign spirit. That's the good news of the gospel. That he can take people who are sexually immoral, wash them, and make them men and women of God who walk in sexual integrity. And that's a witness to the world that can have a powerful impact. May the Lord grant us the grace to walk with sexual purity for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the sure hope of the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is powerful to save. We do marvel that all of our sins have been paid for. Every last bit of wrath that our sins deserved was absorbed by the Lamb of God who hung on that cross at Mount Calvary. And how we bless you that the penalty of sin has been paid. But help us to know as those who are in Christ and who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that the power of sin has also been broken. And day by day, week by week, month by month, that Spirit gives us new victories. Help us to embrace this message and offer this hopeful good news to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, the invitation to participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion is extended to all those who are trusting in Jesus and and believe his finished work is sufficient to save to the uttermost. If you're trusting in Christ as he freely offered in the gospel and you're a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, this is a means of grace, a communion with the Lord that's a gift for you. And we would invite you to participate. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we confess with the historic church what we believe and Typically, we use the Apostles' Creed, found on page 851. So, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And then I'm going to read Romans 6, verses 1 through 16, and I have a meditation from uh, Reverend Griffith. I think it's very helpful, uh, but I'm going to first read Romans 6, verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the ones slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Let me ask you to follow along as I read this wonderful meditation from, again, Dr. Griffith. As Paul explained the gospel to the church in Rome, he had to answer the kind of question that might have been raised in the synagogue. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers sharply, no. Because believers are no longer under the power of sin. This is an experiential reality for each Christian. We've been united with him in a death like his. One who has died has been set free from sin. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Death to sin with Christ, resurrection life with Christ. What has happened for us is grounded in what happened to Christ. What is true of the believer was true first for Christ himself. He died to sin once for all, so also believers' death to sin's power was once for all. 
his resurrection, life to God, is once for all. So also believers are alive to God once for all and from now on. Sin is not the Lord of our lives anymore. It cannot be because we're one with the resurrected Lord Jesus. This is not wishful thinking. This is God's word about us as believers. God is telling us our identity in Christ. Alongside free forgiveness, freedom from the power of sin is a twin gift for every believer purchased with Christ's blood. There's more to say, of course. The apostle urges believers not to offer their bodies any longer as slaves to sin. Though in the inner man we're alive with resurrection life, in the outer man, the mortal body with its passions, we still need to exercise the power of the Spirit to put sin to death. But the fact of our union with Christ means that just as Christ has died to sin, we have too. In the deepest part of our humanity, we have a definitive break with the power of sin. We are alive with Christ's life. We're no longer dead in trespasses and sin. God has made us alive together with Christ. All this is the reason that Paul so emphatically says no to the proposal that we may live in sin in order that grace might increase. It's simply impossible because the one with whom we are united lives to God. Sin will not be, is not, our master because we're under the grace of God. All this was signified in your baptism. At a basic level, it's also signified at this table. Eating Christ's body and drinking his blood are God's signs of our union with him. His blood atoned for us and his life is given to us. Here we need to look away from our experiences, however we think of them, and look instead to heaven where our Lord Christ is. He has given us the spirit of life. Whatever the power of sin may seem to be in your experience, there is a deeper reality about you. God has freed you from the enslaving master. Christ is your Lord and your life. Entrust yourself and all your days to the Lord Jesus Christ and present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Eat and drink in the confidence of the power of the Christ who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ does dwell within us by the power of the Spirit. And we're thankful, O God, as we come to this table and take these ordinary elements while they remain ordinary elements, we are communing with the living and Lord Christ. And so we pray that this communion with Christ will strengthen each of us in our inner man. And we ask this in Jesus' name.